Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Saturday, November 12th, 2022. It's been 3,181 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 262 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, our assessment that it would take Russian forces up to three weeks to complete their withdrawal from the west bank of the Dnipro was excessively conservative, with Russian troops completing their retreat on November 11th. Second, we maintain that when liberation west of the Dnipro is complete, Ukrainian officials will discover that Russian troops committed significant war crimes and atrocities. Third, Our assessment that neither belligerent would institute a winter pause was accurate, with Ukrainian officials declaring there would be no operations pause over the winter. Fourth, we maintain that President Putin's inner circle is actively targeting Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu for dismissal and replacement due to continued military failures in Ukraine. Fifth, our assessment that Russian forces would almost certainly not destroy the Novokhovka Dam while retreating was accurate. Sixth, we maintain that the Russian Navy's presence in the Black Sea has become irrelevant, with missile carriers reluctant to patrol beyond the immediate coast of Sevastopol. Seventh, we maintain that terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure will continue across Ukraine, despite the significantly reduced number of attacks over the last week. Eighth, we assess that the Russian military within Ukraine is combat ineffective, and is only capable of mounting effective defensive operations. Ninth, we maintain that the private military company Wagner Group is spread too thin due to its expanding role in the Donetsk Oblast and the revelation of crippling battlefield losses. Tenth, we maintain that Ukraine holds the battlefield initiative, forcing Russian troops to remain in a defensive posture. And finally, We maintain that Russian forces in Belarus remain a credible threat for an invasion of western Ukraine, but we now assess the possibility has pushed further out to the next 60 to 90 days. Let's get some regional updates and maybe update some of our belligerents' objectives, starting, of course, with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. The updated Russian objective here is to defend the east bank of the Dnipro River, and prevent further Ukrainian advances into the remainder of Russian-controlled Kherson Oblast. The updated Ukrainian objective is to protect civilian lives west of the Dnipro River, consolidate gains, and interdict Russian troops and supplies in the eastern two-thirds of Russian-occupied Kherson. 
Russian forces completed their retreat across the Dnipro River on November 11th, as Ukrainian forces advanced into Kherson city and numerous settlements west of the river. Residents of the administrative center waited for Ukrainian forces to arrive as word of their advance spread. The advance was slowed by mined roads, destroyed bridges, and swarms of Ukrainians greeting the advancing liberators with hugs, kisses, cheers, flowers, and, of course, watermelons. Celebrations erupted in the center of Kherson as the Ukrainian and European Union flags were hoisted over the city. Residents were already working on painting over Russian colors and tearing down Russian propaganda signs and billboards. Celebrations continued into the night after almost nine months of Russian occupation. The reports of massive Russian losses at Novokhovka and Kherson appeared untrue and were spread by panicked Russian social media channels. The Russian Ministry of Defense, or MOD, reported that not one piece of military equipment was left behind in the retreat, but the reality was a little bit different. Ukrainian forces found an abandoned Mi-8 helicopter at Chornobyvka that had somehow survived repeated missile and artillery strikes, and Ukrainian forces have discovered at least three significant ammunition depots. Abandoned Russian positions were being located with equipment, weapons, and additional ammunition left behind. Russian forces successfully destroyed some equipment during their retreat, but all in all, Ukrainian forces appear to be poised to replenish equipment losses. Natalia Huminyuk, Communications Director for Operational Command South, or OCS, reported drone imaging showed significant amounts of military hardware left behind by Russian troops, including artillery, tanks, and armored vehicles. Pictures were starting to emerge of captured Russian troops in Ukrainian custody. Russian propagandist Alexander Sladkov claimed that over 20,000 troops and 3,500 pieces of military equipment were evacuated from the west side of the Dnipro. Russian combat engineers destroyed the Antonovsky Bridge, the Darivka Bridge, the Antonovsky Mist Railroad Bridge, and the bridge over the Novokhovka Dam. While destroying the bridge at the dam and hydroelectric plant, Russian forces damaged at least one of the floodgates during demolition, with satellite images showing some water moving through the damaged area. The dam remains intact, but the damage to the structure is unknown. Neither government has called for an evacuation, however, or stated concern over the visible damage. Russian forces destroyed the 200-meter-high television transmission tower in Kherson as they left the city, further crippling communications. Ukrainian officials were appealing for Kherson residents not to try and return home due to Russian mines, traps, and a lack of electricity, water, sewer, heat, internet and communications, and natural gas service. Fun fact, Ukraine liberated approximately 3,000 square kilometers in the last 24 hours, and 4,300 square kilometers since October 1st. Russia still controls about 65% of the Kherson Oblast east of the Dnipro River. Over 95% of Mykolaiv Oblast is back under Ukrainian control, with Russian forces only holding the Kinburn Spit, which is connected to Russian-occupied Crimea. OCS reported that the Ukrainian Air Force completed two airstrikes on Russian troop concentrations in Berislav and Kherson, while ground forces conducted 34 fire missions. In Chervoni Mayak, a Russian headquarters was attacked, killing up to 30 troops and destroying several vehicles. A group of Russian troops in Khachovka were also attacked, with the number of casualties unknown. 
Russian forces continued to build defensive lines along the east bank of the Dnipro in two echelons, one on the riverbank and the second five to ten kilometers back. Russian engineers are also building extensive defense structures in southern Kherson on the Crimea administrative border. In Novokhovka, collaborators and their families were scheduled to be, quote, evacuated by bus to Russian-occupied Crimea. Overall, the reaction to the military defeat in Kherson among Russian state media and mill bloggers was pretty tepid. The Kremlin had been setting conditions to ready the public and its state media channels that a withdrawal was a necessary and sound military decision. Russian Army Colonel General Sergei Sorovyakin stated last month that, quote, difficult decisions might have to be made, end quote. And the Kremlin released talking points to state media channels to sell the retreat to the Russian public. Some assessment here. We are legit surprised at how effective the Russian retreat was from Kherson and how quickly it was accomplished. While some expected more kinetic warfare, we have repeatedly assessed since April that Ukraine had no interest in retaking Kherson by force and would work to bypass Kherson city and isolate Russian troops. Ukraine fought 11 weeks of attritional warfare in challenging terrain, starving Russian troops of basic supplies to maintain their occupation. With winter approaching and a lack of basic gear, the Kremlin did make a wise decision. Having said that, there is no way to dismiss this as a catastrophic defeat for Russia, even if they retreated with most of their force intact. Unlike Severodonetsk and Lusychansk, which offered limited strategic value, the withdrawal from the West Bank of the Dnipro has dramatically improved the situation in western and central Ukraine, while freeing up significant battle-experienced military resources. The Russian Ministry of Defense has already stated they'll station half of the troops withdrawn from the West Bank along the East Bank. Ukraine, on the other hand, will likely turn over the defense of western Kherson to the Territorial Guard and National Police. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov told Russian state media agency TASS that the Kremlin has not withdrawn its claim on Kherson, and insisted that the areas west of the Dnipro still belong to Russia. He went on to say, quote, There are no changes, and there cannot be any changes here. End quote. Dmitry Medvedev, deputy chairman of the Security Council of the Russian Federation, asked Russians not to, quote, panic over the loss of Kherson and vowed that Moscow would be back to recapture the city. This aligns with the post-retreat talking points the Kremlin provided to news agencies that were leaked to the public. Russian occupation officials announced that the administrative center of Kherson has been moved to Khenechesk, on the shore of the Azov Sea. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and Zaporizhia. The situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant remains unchanged, and the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, has not provided an update since November 5th. There was also no update on the status of the kidnapped Energoatom employee in Russian custody. Russian troops attacked Nikopol, Chervonokhryorivka, and Markhanets, with up to 50 grad rockets fired from multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS. Civilian housing was targeted, but there were no injuries reported. Ukraine claims it hit a Russian command post in Enerkhodar with precision weapons, likely rockets fired by HIMARS, destroying the base, killing 40 troops and wounding 50 more. We cannot verify the veracity of that report. 
There was only sporadic artillery fire from the Zaporizhia-Donetsk administrative border to Huliapola to Orekhiv to Mali Shirbaki. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southwest Donetsk. Ukrainian sources reported that Russian troops took down the Russian and Donetsk People's Republic flags raised in Pavlivka, and the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported continued fighting in the settlement. So it looks like our assessment was accurate that the video recorded by mercenaries with Wargonzo was a so-called picture report to falsely claim a military victory to the Kremlin. We maintain that Pavlivka is contested with Russian forces on the southeastern edge. Positional fighting continued in the eastern part of Marinka, with no change in the situation. The GSAFU reported positional fighting near Nevelske and Russian forces trying to push into Pervomaiske. Russian sources claimed they had occupied Opitne, with mercenaries from Morgonzo releasing yet another picture report. The Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, public relations channel did not report their forces captured the settlement, and Ukrainian sources reported that fighting continued. The 16-second video was shot inside a bomb-blasted home, offering no way to geolocate or authenticate their position. There were continued attempts to advance on the critical Ukrainian stronghold at Krasnohorivka, but the DNR could not break through Ukrainian defenses. The DNR People's Militia Public Relations Channel claimed they destroyed four howitzers, one S-21 Grad Rocket MLRS, four tanks, and 12, quote, armored and automotive vehicles, without the teeny-tiniest, shreddiest shred of evidence. Ukrainian forces completed 101 fire missions on the occupied territories. The Russian MOD reported that only one tank was destroyed across Ukraine and no artillery pieces. In northeast Donetsk, elements of the 2nd Army Corps of the Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, attempted to advance on Verknokamyanskia, and maintained the new military tradition established in July of being unable to enter the settlement. Heavy fighting continues east of Solidar and southeast of Bakhmut, with no significant changes in the situation. We maintain that the attacks on these two cities are entirely pointless and a waste of military resources. Russian and Ukrainian sources reported that Russian troops entered the railroad station at Mayorsk, re-establishing positions that Chechen forces lost back in September. Assessment here. We maintain that PMC Wagner remains bogged down along the Solidarbakhmut axis and does not have the combat power to capture or encircle the cities. In Luhansk, Russian forces continued their attempts to slow the Ukrainian advance at Novoselivske and Miasozharivka, launching continuous offensives on both villages without success. South of Svatova, rockets fired by HIMARS struck a Russian stronghold in Miluvatka. Russian forces continued to launch attacks on Makaivka, but remained unable to recapture the town or push Ukrainian forces back. While Russian Mobics don't appear to have a lot of fight against Ukrainians, they continue to have plenty of fight with Chechen forces from Akhmat. 
While fighting around Makayivka, Mobix and Chechens got into a dispute, which devolved into a firefight. Three Russian-aligned soldiers were wounded. And much to the disappointment of their fans, I'm sure, not a single TikTok was made. Finally, Russian forces supported by PMC Wagner continued their relentless attacks on Bilohorivka and continued to be relentlessly unsuccessful. The introduction of Russian Mobix is creating a frozen front with both belligerents engaged in attritional warfare. While casualties are high on both sides, the lightly armed and poorly trained fresh conscripts suffer extreme casualties along the axis. Moving on to the Kharkiv region. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian forces successfully repelled attacks on Orleanske and Mykolaivka. Russian sources did not report any offensives in the region. The report indicates that Ukraine has established positions in both settlements, and we made a small adjustment to our war map to reflect the advance. In the Black Sea, Crimea, and Odessa region, two missile carriers capable of carrying eight caliber cruise missiles each remain on patrol in the Black Sea. There has been no reported change in position or readiness. Moving on to the Russian front, the Russian Ministry of Defense released a video of a Ukrainian prisoner of war claiming that the Ukrainian military was planning to invade Bilgorod and Kursk oblasts in the winter. The accusation is baseless, and the video was coerced. The Kremlin is attempting to frame Ukrainian successes in defending their own territory as an existential threat to the Russian Federation in order to maintain support for the special military operation among the Russian people. Okay, some assessment here. In less than nine months, we've gone from Kiev in three days to Ukraine is going to invade us. But sure, yeah, all is definitely going to plan. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Oleksiy Danilov, the secretary of the National Security and Defense Council of Ukraine, said there would be no, quote, freezing ongoing offensive operations after the liberation of Kherson during the winter months. Danilov told reporters, quote, We cannot freeze anything. We have to liberate our land in spite of weather or season. We cannot miss a single step because our people are there and we see how they are suffering. End quote. Ukraine has started constructing a wall along the border of Belarus. The fortification includes a tank trap ditch, a defensive embankment, and a concrete reinforced wall with razor wire on the top. Ukrainian officials reported other, quote, surprises were being constructed along the fortified line, but those details are classified. Belarus has extended ongoing military exercises again announcing that joint training with Russian troops will continue through November 21st. Belarus announced annual training exercises in July and has extended the operation since. Ukraine's security service brought down a bot farm in the Venetia Oblast run by four people. The operation would create up to 500 fake accounts a day on various social media platforms, pretending to be Ukrainian nationals in the occupied territories. The operation received technical support from a resident in Kyiv and was backed by the Russian FSB. The operators are not charged with treason, but are accused of committing computer and finance crimes. Speaking of pretending, let's talk about Russian mobilization. 
United States officials reported that Russia attempted another test of its nuclear-powered Poseidon torpedo last month, which allegedly can produce a thousand-meter-high tidal waves. The test was reportedly a failure. Russia announced Poseidon in 2018, but has not been able to complete a successful test of the delivery vehicle. That hasn't stopped the Kremlin and Russian state media, however. From threatening to use Poseidon to target United States coastal cities and destroy the United Kingdom. In our war crimes and human rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is minor graphic detail in today's report, and if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Russia and Ukraine completed another prisoner of war swap, with 45 soldiers returned to each nation. Russia also returned the bodies of two soldiers for burial as part of the exchange. In the liberated region of the Bereslav Rayon in Kherson, investigators found the bodies of three civilians in a basement who appeared to have their heads bashed in. All three had extensive skull fractures. An investigation has begun to determine if this was a war crime. In geopolitical news, Dmitry Peskov told reporters in Moscow that Russian President Vladimir Putin will not virtually attend any sessions of the G20 summit in Bali, which starts on November 15th. Peskov claimed that Putin could not attend due to his schedule and a quote need to stay in Russia. End quote. Sergei Nikiforov, a spokesperson for the president of Ukraine, said that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky will attend the summit. But cannot attend in person. Ballots are still being counted after the United States midterm elections. Democrats appear poised to hold the Senate and could pick up a seat in December when the state of Georgia holds a runoff because no candidate received a majority of the votes. Republican control of the House is no longer certain, but very likely. The Republican Party is expected to reach a narrow majority of up to five seats. But Democrats appear to have a path to maintain control by a single seat, depending on the results of 19 congressional districts yet to be decided. Regardless of which party controls the House, it is unlikely that the results of the midterm elections will change the amount of military and economic aid the United States is providing to Ukraine. Editor's note here: For our United States audience, we are well aware that this is a very polarizing topic, even though it shouldn't be. 48% of our audience is from beyond North America and has expressed an acute interest in the midterm elections and the potential impact they could have on Ukraine. In economic news, Ukrainian trade officials reported that work to expand and improve the ports of Izmail, Reni, and Ust-Danaisk on the Danube River increased capacity from processing 30,000 tons of cargo a month to 1.7 million. The work started over the summer in cooperation with Romania to expand trade and create terminals to distribute grain, meal, and edible oils. The ruble closed out the week stable, but down slightly, with an exchange rate of 61 for one U.S. dollar. Oil prices ended the week unchanged, with WTI crude closing at $89 a barrel and Brent at $96. United States wholesale RBOB gasoline on the spot market dropped a penny to $2.61 per gallon. That's still 69 cents a liter. 
Dutch TTF gas futures for December 2022 continued to plummet, trading at 99 euros per megawatt hour. January 2023 contracts also declined, falling to 106 euros. Chicago SRW wheat futures also closed out the week down sharply, trading at $8.14 a bushel for March 2022 contracts. And that's what we know. Join me again on Monday for more updates. And don't forget to listen to David's Week in Review episode tomorrow. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.